Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode numero nueve, which means nine. Nine. With me, as always, is Senor Rob Leifer. Hey, how are you guys? Hey, uh, by the way, Jay, I don't know if you heard this, but did you hear that racism is done? Can I ask you a question? I was thinking, as I was speaking Spanish, am I appropriating... Right no, now. we're not going to hold you to that. We're not. We're Am not going to get canceled. We're not that PC. We're not canceled. Okay, but good. I don't know if you heard that racism is done, and you know why it's done. No, please tell me who says this. The Redskins changed their name. It's done. It's over. It's over. No more racism in the world. Do we know? Come, wait. Do we know? Do we know to what? No, we don't know yet. There. In fact, I think they just announced they were going to uh, change their name. All right. Well, Mazel Tov. No more racism. Want to tell the listeners in case you didn't hear. The Redskins are changing their name, and racism is officially dead. It's off. It's off the table. No more. We don't. We don't need to talk about it anymore. We can move on. I'm very happy to move on. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, what do you got for us today, Jay? Well, to start off our pod, as we so often do, we have Honest Abe's housekeeping hangout. When he growed up, this tiny babe. Folks all call him Honest Abe, Abraham, Abraham. So welcome to Honest Abe's Housekeeping Hangout. This week, we are talking about forums. We are talking about how you can tell us what you're feeling, what you're thinking, get into a conversation with us and our listeners anonymously. You can tell us who you are. You don't have to tell us who you are. There are a couple ways to do this if you don't want to jump in on our socials, where we have had some interesting conversation already. There are two ways to do this. On our website, um, if you click episodes and then each individual episode, there's a comment thread. You can sign up with a fake email and be completely anonymous and comment away. That's number one. The second is today I started a Discord. What is a Discord, Jay? You might ask me, what is a Discord? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what I asked, actually. Can you answer my question now? Discord is this really cool thing that I only know about because of friend of the pod, Jensen Karp, who is like my podcast mentor, who's done so many podcasts and is doing one right now about Cameo. He started a Discord for his old podcast, Get Up On This. And so I'm aware of Discord because of it. Discord is a great place where you can have conversations, you can get into it, you can mix it up with the people. And we're all about mixing it up with the people. Yes, yes. I I will say that one of my friends, actually one of our mutual friends, who, by the way, this particular mutual friend, I think you know who I'm talking about. I think I finally got him to agree to come on the show. No we'll, way. Uh, yeah, but but we'll uh, we'll talk about that later. Uh, but he he uh, texted me right away. He's like, you know that opening things up for anonymous uh, commenting is probably a really terrible idea. Like that's the worst part of the internet. And I was like, yeah, maybe. So this will be a social experiment. If you get rude or profane, we're going to cut you off so fast and you're ne- no podcast for you. We're going to cancel you. Yeah, we're going to cancel you. And you don't get to listen to our podcast again. So do not say anything profane. Be respectful. Yes. This is a podcast about civil discourse. So we ask that the same happens in all of our places, including Discord. So I will post the Discord link in our socials uh, everywhere we are. And, you know, have at it. And we'll uh, we'll join in. But in all honesty, we really do want to engage with everyone. We want to see what people say. We want to we want you guys to let us know when you think we got it wrong. And we want you to let us know when you think we got it right, or one of us got it right, or one of us is an idiot and the other one is brilliant, you know, or vice versa. You know, just we want to know all of that. But I think a lot of people sort of subscribe to what mother told them as a child, which is don't discuss your politics, you know, 
with the world in, and in public yeah in public yeah um so here's a way that you could do it anonymously that is all i have to say in honest abe's housekeeping hangout thank you for joining me join me next week when i don't know what we'll talk about but it'll be great okay so we got a new segment for you today and it's called rants by riz Now, personally, I thought well, I heard that we were doing a segment called Rants by Riz, and I was like, isn't that just our podcast? But <laughs> with that being said, with the reason we didn't put this in the housekeeping ha- hangout section is because we got a listener suggestion, not really a question, but a suggestion. And it's sort of off topic for today, which is why we needed to give it its own segment. It is off topic, and I have such strong feelings on this. And in fact, when the question or the suggestion came in, I was thinking to myself, I was just thinking about this topic the other day, and I'll explain why in my rant. So the listener's suggestion was, uh, Dear boys, uh, please address why the media only covers COVID cases rising in red states or states with Republican governors and completely ignores blue states like California that currently have more cases than any other state in the country. Okay, so I am going to attempt to take this one. I am not going to call anyone bad names here, but I am going to set the record straight because that's... Yeah, notice how they said, dear boys, and Riz is taking this one. (laughs) Exactly. I'm taking this one because I have a feeling I have... uh, It's more appropriate for the the left-winger to take this one. Agreed. Go ahead. Okay. So right-wing media is able to get away with uh, an incredible amount of hyperbole because they rely on the fact that very few of their viewers ever turn on so-called mainstream networks or read mainstream publications. Uh, I read a Fox News poll, actually just I think it was a few weeks ago, that said 94% of their viewers got their news from Fox exclusively. Okay, so this allows the right wing media, it gives them the ability to sort of make broad claims without having to be fact checked in real time. Uh, As I've said before, this is why it is so important that whatever side of the aisle you're on, whether you're a liberal or a libtard or or a a right winger or or an alt writer, whatever the hell you call yourself, if you're legitimately interested in what's going on in the world for real, uh, you should expose yourself to a wide variety of sources. I've said many, many times on this show that I listen to a ton of right wing commentators, even though I disagree with them. It's good to do that. So you understand what the different perspective is, and you can sort of figure out where you lie. Uh, I, too, with that said, have been hearing right-wing networks and commentators talking exactly about this thing, where they will say, quote, the media only reports on red state failings, end quote. And let me tell you, this is simply incorrect. It's just not true. It is, I wouldn't say it's a lie, but it is an exaggeration, a very, very, uh, you know, serious exaggeration. I've been home with my kids all day, essentially, since COVID crisis started. Uh, I have CNN on in the background all day. CNN has legitimately, I would put my hand to God and and swear that CNN has done full exposés at this point on what went wrong in California and in New York. They have done that. They have ignored the good work of Gavin Newsom in California as much as they've criticized the work of Ron DeSantis in Florida. So the idea that the media doesn't cover 
this is full-on nonsense. It's just not true. It sort of reminds me how the right was broadly claiming in 2015 and 2016 that the media was in the bag for Hillary Clinton. You always heard this. You know, they want Hillary Clinton to be elected, even though I spent personally six months screaming at my television while CNN was incessantly covering Hillary's email scandal that nobody gave a crap about. So the idea that they were, that, you know, let's get to the point here, okay? The question is, why does the right-wing media behave like this? Okay, that's probably what people are saying. Well, why do they do that? Well, this is my personal contention, and you could disagree with me if you want, but I will tell you that I think you're wrong. The conservative agenda these days is rooted in victimhood mentality. The most pervasive right-wing talking points all center around the idea that the entire world, not just American institutions, but every global institution in the world is somehow against the American conservative agenda. So it's not just the upper brass of every government institution, the FBI, the CIA, the IRS, that has been sort of infected with liberalism, if you will, but it's every cultural institution as well, which of course includes the media. And so what team is it that is always easier to get people to root for? It's the underdog. The underdog is always the easier team to root for. The GOP is the perpetual underdogs in our system of government. This is why, despite the fact that supposedly every institution in the world is against conservative values and conservative America, the GOP somehow keeps winning and winning and winning and winning and winning. Even when they lose, they somehow still end up winning. When Barack Obama was elected, it was some of the greatest times for the GOP, the state houses they took, the I mean, just the amount that they were able to get accomplished during Barack Obama. It's like nothing. The Democrat, there's no parallel with the Democrats. When the, when a Republican president is in is in office, the Democrats can't get nearly anything accomplished. The right wing media has played a very big part in that. And in summation, I file these sort of claims under right wing fantasy. To me, this is fan fiction for conservative America. So to address our listener who asked this question, I just don't think you're right. I, I, I think you have good reason to believe what you believe, probably because you're listening to so much Fox and you're thinking there is such an incentive for right-wing media to claim this bias in the media. And I'm not saying those biases don't exist on a certain level. What I am saying is that the idea that the media is not covering the bad stuff that's happening in blue states just because they're trying to paint a narrative that red is bad and blue is good is just not true. It's not true. It's false. So fact check false. And that's the end of Riz's rant. So I watched Knock Down the House over the weekend, uh, which is essentially a documentary about AOC's rise to power. And it's fascinating. And I think we should talk about it another time. My point is, is that she and the sort of system that built her and gave her the, uh, the position that she's currently in, uh, they talk about giving the power back to the people, obviously, as we've talked about previously. They paint the people, the working class people, as the underdogs who are the people that need to be running the country, essentially, who need to be the ones who are making the decisions. And that speaks to, and I understand what you're saying, but when I hear that, it rubs against that progressive left saying, no, wait, we're the underdogs. So Yeah, because, I, listen, there is a segment of the progressive left that are working class. But if you look at the demographics, the vast majority of the money in this country is, is on the Democratic side. I mean, most most of, of the Republicans have become the, the party of the working class. And I don't I, I'm not necessarily saying that the working class 
should feel victimized necessarily. What I'm saying is that th- this this is not about policy. This is about, as we've talked about last week, the culture war. And there, this is a perception. Yeah, the the underdog perception that I'm talking about is in regard to American culture. There is a constant conservative drumbeat that we are the underdogs in cons- in American culture. You know, the media, Hollywood, and everything surrounding all of those things. And and it's, and, it's a narrative. It's not reality. Right. It's a narrative saying. that has that has been absorbed even by government agencies. You'll hear now what is a big talking point of. Trump. The the FBI is infected with liberals who are trying to take down conservatives. I actually believe that this is the case, but there's no biggest example in the world, in my opinion, right now than the American education system, especially universities. And, you know, we, we should leave it right there because the guest I was talking about that might come on might have some things to say about that. Yes, the academia is numero uno. When you put on right-wing media, I would say the number one thing that they attack the one number one institution that gets attacked from the right is is academia writ large in general not just higher institution not not just college institutions but uh starting all the way down in grade school. And I think there was an incredible amount of hyperbole in that too, but that could be an entire episode. And in fact, it will be uh, an entire episode. The point is to answer this listener's uh, suggestion. Watch other channels. Watch more television, read other news networks, uh, you know, do your research. If you look hard enough and you don't have to look that hard, you'll be able to find the full spectrum of any singular issue in the world just it's called the internet guys welcome to it well this is what i was saying to my my father-in-law a while back i was i guess you know he's he's a left winger and i was telling him um you know it's not a bad idea to listen to rush limbaugh or people like that every once in a while and he was like why why would you do why would i do that i said well because you really understand where the center is when you hear far right when you hear the extremes listen to aoc that's why I watched the documentary. If you can stand it, do it. <laughs> but but uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, the more knowledge you have, if you, I mean, of course, if you're into this stuff, if you're not into this stuff, you're probably not even listening to the podcast. So what, you know, get out of here. But <laughs> but you know, if you're into this stuff, I encourage everyone put on Fox. If you only have CNN on, put on Fox for at least thirty minutes just to see what's going on, what they're talking, about. and you'll be amazed. You're like, oh my god, it's a different world over here. That's you get. You got to get out of the echo chamber. I couldn't agree more. Get out of it. Echo chamber no more. All right. Riz's rant. Yes. All right. So let's go into the main crux of the episode here. So I will introduce the episode. I'm not stopping you. (laughs) We wanted to do sort of a topical episode today, and we wanted it to be very specifically about the American healthcare system. The reason for that is, number one, we are in the greatest health crisis in American history. So health is on everyone's mind, of course, as it should be. But then beyond that, I saw a poll recently of Democratic voters uh, that said 75% of Democratic voters polled said healthcare was their number one issue in this election. So, and, and it's been that like that for a long time. Healthcare is a divisive, very important issue for a lot of people. And, you know, I'll just, I'll, I'll give a little personal quip before we, we go into it. Uh, my family... As I've, as I've said many times before on this podcast, both my wife and I are small business owners, okay? So we don't get our health insurance through our employer. Do you get yours through your employer, Jay? I do not. I, I'm, uh, I, I subscribe to private health, private health insurance. Okay. Um, yeah, so we don't get ours through our employer uh, like so many 
blessed individuals in this country do, we have to buy our own health care. So for a family of four, we spend about $1,500 a month for our premium. Now, uh, that's not even... It's a lot of money, but it's not even a great plan. It's like a silver level plan, so it's not even like the top plan. Uh, we still have a pretty high deductible, but $1,500 a month for a family of four times 12 months, that's $18,000 a year. But that doesn't even scratch the surface of what we actually spend on healthcare because we have two little kids, and anyone who has two little kids or kids at all knows they are walking disgusting germ farms. Once your kids become toddlers uh, and you start bringing them to daycare or to, to school or whatever, they bring home every single thing they pick up because they don't have the immunities yet. Now, again, let's let's pretend this is pre-COVID, okay? I don't know what the standards, I, don't, don't quote me on anything in the COVID era. I don't want anyone to be taking my advice, getting somebody sick. But pre-COVID, it was good to expose your kids to germs because by the time they got to be like four or five years old, they built up their immunities. Our kids like never got sick anymore. But for those first few years, they get sick every other week and then they get you sick. I had like, a, I basically had a year round cold, cold for like two years. Sick all the time. They're just mildly sick, right? It mixed in with a few like very sick moments. But my daughter, when she was four years old, had 12 ear infections in one year. Every time we bring her to the doctor, that's $45 right there, the copay. That's in addition to the premium. Then when you have to go to the ear specialist, that's $75 because it's a specialist. You have two kids, that's double because anything one of them has, the other one is going to have. So every time she gets an ear infection, he gets one and vice versa. When you add up that with all of the prescriptions that you have to pay for out of your own pocket. Our health insurance only covers generic prescriptions. So if you need a special medication, you're paying full price for that. When I, when I sit down and do my taxes every year, we spend what Bernie Sanders actually says most people spend who don't get their insurance through through work, which is between twenty five and thirty thousand dollars a year on health insurance for a family of four. And it is an insane amount of money when you think about it. Some people in this country don't even make that. You know, I guess I could say we're blessed to be able to to have that, but it's certainly anything but ideal. Our system, and we want to go down, go through, and break down some of our systems. But before we can actually do that, it's probably a good. Thing to give you guys some history. So Jay, in his famous buzzed history, is going to do just that. He's going to get walk you through a little bit uh, of the history of the American healthcare system. So let's do it, Jay. Buzzed history, here we go. Buzz history. All right, welcome to Buzz History. It's a good thing I'm buzzed because today we're going to learn about the history of organized healthcare in America. In order to do this and not entirely put you to sleep, spoiler alert, we might anyway, uh, we're going to go by decade, and there's still quite a bit to get through. So let's start in the 1700s, colonial times. We got royal colonies like New Jersey and North and South Carolina, the French and Indian War, the Hat Act, the Sugar Act, the Stamp Act, the Tea Act, which, you guessed it, led to the Boston Tea Party. We had pretty rudimentary medicine practiced in the colonies, and because of this, mortality rates were high, especially for infants and small children. We had malaria, diphtheria, and yellow fever to deal with, and although smallpox inoculation was introduced, most remedies were folk remedies, like, you know, covering oneself in crystals, stuff that we don't do anymore. Anyway, in these early days of American medicine, there was virtually no government regulation or attention paid to public health. However, the first medical society was formed in Boston in 1735, and in 1750, the first general hospital was established in Philadelphia. And just a decade and change later, the Medical College of Philadelphia was founded, and shortly after that, in 1770, the first American MD degree was awarded at King's College in New York. That brings us to the 1800s, the Civil War. 
Actually, can we skip the 1800s for now? It's a little politically charged. No? Too important? Okay. The 1800s. We're just going to focus on medicine here. Okay, people? Now, not sure if you knew this, but more soldiers died of disease than from fighting in the Civil War. There was a severe shortage of med supplies and physicians. We had epidemics of measles, mumps, chicken pox, whooping cough, and dysentery, and typhoid ravaged the South. Hmm. Just the South, huh? Wasn't all bad, though. The war ushered in new surgical techniques, research, nursing methods, and care facilities. The Union, yay, built army hospitals in every state. Proactive medical organizers made great progress due to a well-funded U.S. Army Medical Department and the U.S. Sanitary Commission. There were a host of new health-regulated agencies formed during this time, which raised public awareness about healthcare. States also began spending money on healthcare. In 1862, Ohio converted boats into floating hospitals that they sent into battle. After the war came the establishment of the Army Hospital Corps and the Library of the Surgeon General's Office, which became the center of our modern medical information system. Perhaps most importantly, in 1849, the American Medical Association, or the AMA, was founded and lapped up over half the physicians in the country by 1899. Now, it's extremely important to note that most healthcare up until this point in time was provided as a fee for service with payment due at the time of care. That brings us to the 1900s, starting with Teddy Roosevelt, who believed in a strong healthcare system, as he said, quote, no country could be strong whose people were sick and poor. However, most of the initiatives that led to stronger healthcare in America were led by organizations and companies outside of the government. We had the Industrial Revolution, which created dangerous work, which created workplace injuries. As the injuries piled up, so did the power and size of the unions to shield members from financial loss due to injury or illness. Companies began to offer different forms of sickness protections. Leading the charge in the advancement of healthcare for American workers was the American Association of Labor Legislation, who drafted actual legislation targeting the working class and low-income citizens, including children. Under this bill, qualified citizens would receive sick pay, maternity, benefits, and a death benefit of $50 to cover funeral expenses. The cost would be split between states, employers, and employees. Ultimately, the bill, which was initially backed by the AMA, lost footing, as the AMA ultimately pulled its support, citing concerns over how doctors would be compensated. This was followed by resistance from the private insurance agency due to fears it would undermine their business and ultimately the bill, along with the Progressive Party, who were introducing the idea of a national health service dissolved in 1916, and with it went any hope of the first opportunity for public health care. After World War I, the price of health care surged in America as hospitals and physicians began to charge more than the average citizen could afford. In 1923, Baylor Hospitals in Dallas created a program in connection with local schools to provide health care to teachers for a prepaid monthly fee. This program birthed the nonprofit Blue Cross Blue Shield, inspiring a host of private insurers to enter the marketplace. The Blues, as they were called, expanded across the country throughout the 1930s as FDR began work on a health insurance bill that included, quote, old age benefits needed at the time. Once again, the AMA opposed plans for a national health system, and as that prompted FDR to drop the health insurance portion of the bill, the Social Security Act of 1935 created the first system of its kind to provide support for the retired, elderly, unemployed, and disabled. Those are separate categories, by the way, although they don't have to be. Around this time, a gentleman named Henry Kaiser contracted with Dr. Sidney Garfield to provide prepaid health care to 6,500 of his employees working at the Grand Coulee Dam. As World War II raged and American involvement began, all focus shifted to the war effort. This saw the incentivization of employees through employer-sponsored health insurance as we know it today. Meanwhile, facing a very similar issue than he did previously, Dr. Garfield organized and ran a prepaid arrangement of care that would eventually become the Kaiser Permanente Health Plan, which evolved into our present-day system of HMOs and PPOs. 
As the war ended, the Magner-Murray-Dingle Bill was introduced in 1943, proposing universal health care funded through a payroll tax. The bill faced major opposition and was lost in committee. President Harry Truman attempted to pick up where FDR left off and amended the plan to include all Americans rather than only working class and poor citizens. This was met with mixed reactions in Congress with one House subcommittee calling the plan a communist plot. In the 1950s and 60s, as new medical techniques and advancements were discovered, the cost of hospital care again doubled and the government began tracking national health expenditures, which was now accounting for 5% of the GDP. As JFK took office, a similar turn of events occurred. A bill was introduced and the AMA promptly shut it down. President Lyndon Johnson would have better luck passing the Social Security Act of 1965, laying the groundwork for what we know today as Medicare and Medicaid. President Nixon, surprising his base, came with his own plan, teaming up with Senator Ted Kennedy, who ultimately, under pressure from unions, walked away from the deal. Shortly after, Watergate occurred, and we all know what happened from there. Nixon left office, but not before he expanded Medicare in the Social Security Amendment of 1972 and the Health Maintenance Organization Act of 1973. The 1980s saw the introduction of COBRA, signed by President Ronald Reagan, allowing former employees to continue to be enrolled in their previous employer's group health plan. And in 1993, President Bill Clinton proposed the Health Security Act of 1993, echoing FDR and Nixon's previous health care plans, a mix of universal coverage while respecting the private insurance system. Unfortunately, the bill died in 93 as Congress left for winter recess. Clinton went on to sign the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996, guaranteeing the availability of an individual's medical records and the Children's Health Insurance Program, expanding Medicaid assistance to uninsured children up to age 19 with incomes too high to qualify for Medicaid, which is still in use today. In 2003, President George W. Bush would oversee the Medicare Prescription Drug Improvement and Modernization Act of 2003, which, as you might have guessed, updated Medicare to include prescription drug coverage. Upon the election of President Barack Obama, the government got straight to work on health care reform. He enlisted the help of Senator Ted Kennedy to help create a law that would mirror the bill he and Nixon worked on in the 70s. The bill mandated that applicable large employers provide health insurance, that all Americans carry health insurance even if their employer did not offer it. It established an open marketplace on which insurance companies could not deny coverage based on pre-existing conditions, and American citizens earning less than 400% of the poverty level would qualify for subsidies to help cover the cost. This bill, named the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare for short, was signed into law on March 23, 2010. Eight million people signed up for insurance through the ACA marketplace, ultimately peaking at 12.2 million in 2016, with 10 million of those receiving government subsidies to help pay for insurance. The ACA has covered an average of 11.3 million people annually since its inception. On January 20, 2017, the day he was inaugurated, President Trump, acting on a campaign promise, issued an executive order directing administration officials to waive, defer, grant exemptions from, or delay implementing parts of the ACA, while Congress prepped to repeal and replace Obamacare. Six months later, due to a dramatic legislative move by late Senator John McCain, Congress was unable to repeal the ACA, and since that time, the current administration has systematically dismantled the ACA via a piecemeal approach. In November of 2019, the White House issued an executive order designed to bring pricing transparency to the healthcare system. Issued jointly by the Department of Health and Human Services, the Treasury, and the Department of Labor, this proposed rule would force hospitals and insurers to disclose the secretive rates they negotiate with each other for a massive list of services, including supplies and drug costs. However, shortly thereafter, President Trump backed a competing bill in the Senate, a bipartisan effort requiring drug makers to pay rebates to Medicare if they hike prices above inflation. At the time of this buzzed history, both bills appear to be dead on arrival. This particular buzz history has been quite a roller coaster, folks, and I hope it has shown you just how much your vote counts. These are big things that affect us on the most personal of levels, so remember to vote in November. Your life may just count on it. Buzz history. 
Wow, Jay. I am not just buzzed. I'm drunk now. Woo! All right. I am drunk too. That was a lot. That was a lot to take in. I hope you all enjoyed it. That was actually a very, very thorough explanation. I mean, I, there was so much information. I didn't want to bore anyone. So if you, if, you, if you missed anything, go back and listen again. It'll do you good. Exactly. Yeah. Listen two or three times. Slow it down if you have to. But uh, this is good. It's important stuff to know. I didn't know half the stuff that was in there. So thank you, Jay. I really appreciate that. My pleasure. Let's go through a few of the myths about our healthcare system because you probably hear a lot of demonization of our healthcare system. Not much good, but there actually is some good. So I want to talk about some good. Number one. It is still the best in the world in terms of scientific advancements. This is undisputed. You might notice when you go to the doctor, you have a lot of people from foreign countries, a lot of people with heavy accents, and that's because a lot of doctors all over the world want to practice in America. Now, why would they want to practice in America? Well, because they make more money here. And that's a great thing. Yay, capitalism. Number two. 70% of the world's medical patents come from the United States. I bet you didn't know that, okay? You could sleep easy tonight knowing that we are creating all of the technology that other countries are using better than we are. Um, (laughs) But the truth of the matter is that we do hold 70% of the world's medical patents. Most of the innovation is coming from this country. So as much as you hear about the downfalls of America and American uh, healthcare system, we do create a lot of innovation and that is a very good thing. And that's a good thing. Yay, capitalism. Number three, uh, thousands come from both Canada and Europe and actually all over the world to be treated here every year. We hear about this all the time. Canadians cross the border, especially with certain uh, medical, uh, certain things like cancer. It's We have much better outcomes here. People come to this country all the time to be treated because like I said uh, in point one, we do have the best doctors here generally. And, you know, a lot of people might say that it's because those doctors make a lot of money. Yay, capitalism. And uh, number four, uh, outcomes are actually quite good in this country, considering that we are the single most obese and unhealthy country in the world. And that is true. I think Mexico is number two. We are the most obese, unhealthy country in the world. So what you might hear a lot about child mortality rates being bad in this country. You can make an argument that a lot of that is tied to just how unhealthy we are and not necessarily to the quality of our medical care. Now, of course, you might be saying, if, you're, if our medical system is so good, why are we so unhealthy? You know, that's a discussion that we could have on another day. In fact, I think it's a discussion that ties into other discussions we've had. This might very well go back to our discussion on on societal inequities, lack of education, less opportunity in the workforce, insufficient access to healthy food. All of these things lead us to be so unhealthy. But what I'm saying is that with us being that unhealthy, our medical outcomes are actually pretty good. Um, So when you hear about other countries having better medical outcomes, a lot of times it's because those countries just are inherently healthier than us. We are an overweight uh, unhealthy country. Our healthcare is exponentially that much better because uh, we're so unhealthy and yet the outcomes are still good. Yeah. And for all those Bill Maher fans out there, he points this out all the time and I agree with him. It also increases our exponential cost of our healthcare uh, because being unhealthy is expensive. You know, you need a lot more medical procedures, a lot more medical care. Maybe if we focused more attention, maybe that is a government failing we could talk about, focusing more intention, attention on health and wellness and fitness and getting us all to a healthier place. You know what you could do? 
to start out with, you can start wearing your masks. As you might have noticed, a theme there is all about capitalism and how good it is. This is why money is good, okay? It incentivizes people to spend up to two decades in the medical school system so that when they eventually come out on the other side, they know they're going to be very well off. This is a good thing. This is, again, yay capitalism. Capitalism once again proves to provide the greatest innovations and performance. Money is not, for all you Bernie, money is the root of all evil people. Money is not the root of all evil. Money is the root of all innovation. It is really true. We innovate because we have the most money in our system and because our doctors make the most money. This is all very good. And so, you know, maybe, and I'm not demonizing you if you think the other way. I'm just maybe enlightening you to some of the benefits of this capitalist system that you have heard for so many years is evil and corrupt. It does produce a lot of good things, and two of those things happen to be incredible innovation and really good performance. So that's a good thing. I would like to point uh, our listeners to a great program. It's called the Jamie Oliver Food Revolution. And uh, Jamie Oliver is a Brit, but he came to America and he he went through the school uh, lunch system, and he went through different ways that we can in, uh, improve on the current school lunch program. And I think it's very relevant to the conversation because, you know, obviously you've just pointed out that our healthcare system provides a lot of great things to society and keeps us, you know, healthy and alive and whatnot. And now there's a lot that we can do as citizens ourselves. And some of these things address uh, inequities, as you as you mentioned. And this is a show that not only addresses inequities. It points to possible solutions. So it's a great program. It's called Jamie Oliver Food Revolution. You should check it out. Let's go through some of the things that healthcare can be for a second, okay? There are basically, if you take all the healthcare systems around the world, there are basically three things. Let's be very general here. There are three things that healthcare can be. Number one, it could be high quality which is what we are in the United States. You could have a high quality, meaning that the outcomes are good and that the access to healthcare is good. You can get the care that you need. That's high quality care. Number two, it could be universal, meaning everyone in society automatically has it. You're born into it. We all have it. Number three, it could be affordable. We all know what that means. Okay, It doesn't cost a lot of money. But here's the catch. It can only be two out of those three things. It can never be all three. It cannot be high quality, universal, and affordable. So let's give some examples, okay? So there's the Canadian system. A lot of Canadians love their, their healthcare system. The Canadian system is both universal, meaning everyone in society is born into it, everyone has it, and affordable, meaning they don't tax you to death in Canada to pay for that system. Other countries in Europe have very, very high uh, tax rates, which we'll get to, but Canada is a reasonably affordable system. But it is not high quality. And that is why so many Canadians come across the border to get healthcare here when they really need it, especially if they have really bad things like cancer. The problem in Canada is that it's a single payer system. And it's, it, it, it's really not good because you're negotiating with only one entity and there's no competition. There's no marketplace. If, one, if only one entity is buying... Uh, even though there are multiple sellers, you're going to run into a quality problem. Right. Well, not just that, Jay, but also there is, you might have heard the term death panels when we were talking about Obamacare in the beginning. The Tea Party was very big on that. In Canada, they have groups of 
government bureaucrats, unelected government bureaucrats, meaning people that you don't know who it's, who's doing this, that decide how important a procedure you may need is. So if your next door neighbor needs an MRI and you need an MRI and your next door neighbor needs it a little bit more than you, you have to get in line. So that's called rationing. There is absolutely rationing that takes place in Canada. And a lot of people who have gotten used to the system don't mind it. But the difference here in America, if you need an MRI, you could walk into any hospital and get one right then and there. Um, so it's, uh, you know, that's the problem with with the Canadian system. It's high, it's, it's, it's universal and it's affordable, but it's not high quality. Yeah, it's not unlike England as well. They have they both both of these countries have massive restrictions on access to care, so that people don't tax the system or take advantage. They regulate prices heavily, and there's controls on these prices of care as well as what you know you just mentioned. Right now, there's also examples like Switzerland and Denmark. They have very high quality care, meaning uh, you know, the Switzerland system. Uh, well, there's no public option in, in Switzerland. It's only private insurance. There's no Medicare, no Medicaid. Yeah, I'm not really sure the uh, the, the intricacies of the system. All I know is that they're, they have a, a, a very highly regarded healthcare system. I can break it down in about a sentence. Please do. So, so like I said, Switzerland has no public option. It's only private insurance. There's no Medicare, no Medicaid. But there is an individual mandate. There are subsidies for people in the bottom fifth of the spectrum, and that's in terms of uh, you know uh, income and all of those things. Right. So Switzerland has a high quality healthcare, and it's also universal. Everyone in Switzerland and Denmark automatically have their healthcare. It's mandated, so everyone has to have healthcare. You have to have it. The mandate does make it universal. Correct. But what it isn't, what it isn't, is affordable. Correct, because it's a it's a, a wholly private system. Right. And Denmark, I mean, I'm not sure about Switzerland, but I know in Denmark, they pay upwards of 70 percent, uh, you know, of their uh, of their hard earned money. So think about that. Every dollar you make, 70 percent goes to the government. And a lot of that is going to pay for this very expensive and very high quality healthcare system. In Switzerland and in Denmark, these are small communities that are homogenous societies. So a lot of them don't mind that they're paying those kind of taxes. Would a system like that in America work? Absolutely not. Now, the American system is high quality, but it's not universal or affordable. So one can very well make the argument that basically it's the worst of all. It's a system. It's only one of the three things. Everyone else gets two. We only get one. It's one of the three things. Now, now. It was supposed to be high quality and affordable. The Affordable Care Act was supposed to solve that, but of course it didn't do that. Now, two things could be true at once. True thing number one, Obamacare had very good intentions. True thing number two, Obamacare was a failure. It was. And I'm not... I won't say that it was Obama's failure. There was a lot of sabotaging on the right that was going on. But what Obamacare intended to do was to incentivize people to get health care because we are living in a country where 40 million people are every day are going without health insurance. And that is driving up costs so much. So the idea was we incentivize people by taxing them. If you have health insurance, you don't have to pay this tax. And that that would... Some incentive. Right. Yeah, exactly. But that would incentivize people to say, you know, forget it. I'll just go buy health insurance. I think the word you're searching for is force. Yeah, exactly. Force people to. But it didn't work. It didn't work because, uh, you know, and I have friends who were, fell in this boat where like doing the math and like, eh, the tax is still less than I'd have to pay even for the cheapest health care. I've gone my whole life without health care. I'm not doing it now. So, you know, a lot of people just ended up being pissed off because they were like, 
now I have to pay this tax when I was always fine without health care, even though, honestly, and I'll get to this in a, in a little bit, not having health care is what's burdening the system. So it is, some, well, some can make, uh, you know, you, you could say that it's sort of selfish in a way to not have health care. Okay, so whether there's a mandate or not, all taxpayers are forced to support the system, which is essentially the same as public school. So that means even if you are paying for private insurance, you're supporting people that use the system, even if you don't. Right, right. I think that was one of the big problems. Yeah, well, well, I think the failure of Obamacare came in the fact that the incentivization wasn't enough. So many people still said, eh, I'll just pay the taxes and not have health care. And number two, the subsidies weren't enough. So for instance, for me, the way it worked, and you know, in California, it's called Covered California. That's the Obamacare network. We, we, we went through, originally, we went through Obamacare because we thought we would save money, but we ended up making too much money that year. And if you'd make too much money and don't qualify for the subsidies, based on your uh, the amount of people in your family they actually ch- you get a bill after that you have to pay that in your tax bill uh the subsidies that they gave you so it ends up being really a frustrating system and we ended up just saying the next year you know what let's buy our insurance off the market and not even buy a market plan because it didn't make sense for us it does make sense now the, the benefit of Obamacare was it did like like you said in the in your buzz history it did I think what 12 million people got health care yeah so 11 11 point something right annually. so close to 12 million people that's that is a good thing and it does help out people uh, lower income people to give them health insurance for the for the first time that does theoretically help the system but it ju- it just didn't do enough so biden has proposed a bailout essentially of obamacare 750 billion over the next decade you think that it's it's worth spending or you think we should overhaul the system in a different way i think we should overhaul the system i want to give you my the first ever libertarian argument for universal American health care. And then I want to talk a little bit about a system that a guy close to me, this guy that I like to call dad, has thought of. Dad. That, yeah, dad. Mr. Yeah. Herb Lifer Esquire? Mr. Herb Lifer. <laughs> yeah, no Esquire. But, uh, but yeah, he, uh, he thought up a great system. And, uh, you know, I don't, you know what? Maybe we could even get him on the line. But before, before we do that, um, let's talk about my libertarian argument for universal health care. Now, Any libertarians who are listening will be saying, no, the government should handle military, police, fire, that's it. There is nothing in the Constitution that says that the government is supposed to handle healthcare. But here's my thing. What are libertarians always talking about? Freedom. Freedom is so important, right? Now, I tend to be a left, uh, a liberal-leaning libertarian. The truth of the matter is, with 40 million people who are uninsured, Like we said, you are going to be, your premium is higher because those people are uninsured. Now, I know the libertarians have argued for years, well, that's my freedom. They hated Obamacare because they didn't like the idea that they wanted to have the freedom to choose if they didn't want health. That's what America is about. Freedom. My freedom to not have health care. But what I, my question is, when does your freedom to not have a product start to impinge on my freedom to pay a reasonable rate. In other words, name me a product, another product in American life where you have to pay for somebody else who's unwilling to pay or unable to pay. It, it just doesn't work like that. You know, if you can't afford a car, 
we don't just give you a car and everyone else pays for it through their car payments. We are all going to get sick. We are all going to need care at some point of our lives. This might be the one element of human life, of American life, where we all just need to suck it up and say we are all in this together, not like we've been with COVID-19, by the way. We haven't been in this together at all because you idiots haven't been wearing masks. But for this thing, we are all in this together. We need to all suck it up and pay for it just the way we pay for unemployment insurance and Medicare and everything else that we all pay for. And I think it's a very interesting libertarian case because my liberty to pay a better rate should supersede, I think, your liberty to just not want to carry health insurance. I mean, you know, maybe some libertarians might be like, he's crazy, but this is the way I feel. Also, I want I want to make one other point. And I know there's people, in fact, my father is one of them who disagree with me on this. You will often hear people say uh, on the left, the Bernie Sanders left especially, that health care is a right. This is a very big talking point. It's huge. I think, I think almost all the Democrats say it now. Health care is a right. Sorry, it's not. Fact check false. <clears throat> health care is not a right. Health care is a good. And in fact, when you call something a right, it doesn't just magically appear. That's it, It's not like, oh, this is because you say it doesn't mean it's true. right. Exactly. Breathing air is a right because air around us just exists. Just saying health care is a right. First of all, I, I, I would think it's pretty insulting. Like I can only speak for myself, but if I went to school for 15 years and spent upwards of a half a million dollars to become a medical doctor so that I could come out on the other side and then be handed a government paycheck, I'd be pretty upset about that, okay? So when you're saying healthcare is a right, you're basically saying the government has to tell every doctor that they must treat you whether or not you can pay for it or whether or not they want to. Healthcare is not a right. Healthcare is a good. It's a good like everything else. And calling it a good actually values it more. It devalues it to call it a right. Um, and by the way, in certain societies that have rights to sort of interesting things like that, like for instance, in South Africa, Africa. South Africa is one of the few countries that has a right to housing. So in the South African constitution, every single citizen of the country has a right to, to housing. So there's no homelessness. But what do you think happens when the government makes that a right? Well, you have a lot of crappy housing, government housing. And so there's a housing crisis there because there is the free market can't flourish in that kind of environment. There is a difference between rights and goods. And I think it's a, it's a really important distinction to make. If you are a, if you're a Bernie bro who's listening to this and say, well, Bernie always tells me healthcare is a right. What I'm telling you is that I think he's wrong. Healthcare is not a right. Healthcare is something that should be cherished. It's a luxury. It's a good. And the fact that we have such easy access to healthcare in this country actually points to how great this country is. Doesn't mean our healthcare system is great, but the country itself is great. Now, I want to go ahead into a little bit about my father's healthcare plan. And I'm going to try to explain. It's a little bit. You know what, Jay? Why don't we just get him on the line? I think we should call him up. In fact, you know what? Let's just do a whole new segment let's let's call this segment father knows best father knows best so it is my pleasure to introduce to our audience my father herb blyfer as you can all imagine, being my father, I must disclose that I have a very close relationship with him and maybe slightly partial to his political leanings. 
That said, let me explain why we have invited my father to the podcast today. My father recently shared his thoughts regarding a proposal for a healthcare, a universal healthcare plan by reaching out to the Biden campaign with the beginnings of what I thought was some unique and creative thinking. Of course, again, I may be partial. But first, let me provide our audience with a brief understanding of why my father isn't pulling this stuff out of midair. We would hate for you to think that we're just parading our family members out here without any kind of qualifications. Uh, my father is the retired owner and founder, founding partner of one of Long Island's largest and most successful advertising agencies, Harrison Lightford DeMarco. Uh, one of the agency's specialties was servicing clients within the healthcare industry. HLD, as they were widely known, represented and worked closely with health insurance and pharmaceutical companies, as well as some of the most prestigious hospitals in the New York tri-state area. Some of their clients were Long Island Jewish Hospital, North Shore Health System, Maimonides Hospital, Vitra Healthcare, Sando Pharmaceuticals, just to name a few. Uh, in 2007, he had an opportunity to sell the agency, and he and my mother moved to Denver, Colorado, where they now reside. Uh, in his 40-year career, he learned a little bit about the inner workings of the healthcare industry and many of its shortfalls. As he says, when it comes to healthcare, he knows the good, the bad, and the ugly. But what may be his most important qualification is that, as a retired senior citizen, he has been the recipient in the past few years of the benefits of Medicare. So without further ado, here is my dad, Herb Leifer. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for inviting me here today. Welcome, welcome. As we all know, our country continues to struggle uh, with just how to put together a universal health care plan that could cover the majority of Americans in an affordable fashion. From my perspective, Trump and the Republicans have proven that they are either not interested or they are incapable of coming up with any viable solution. Trump himself literally has no clue, except that he would like to strike down every initiative ever accomplished by the Obama administration, including his signature initiative, Obamacare. Democrats, on the other hand, have been talking about Medicare for all. I'm sure we've all heard that a million times already for the last four voting cycles. But they have not been able to tell the American public how it would be paid for. So with this in mind, and my casual knowledge, as my son uh, has uh, given you my pedigree a little bit in the healthcare industry, I reached out to the Biden campaign recently. I will tell you I have not heard anything back yet. Uh, but I've shared with them thoughts for a plan that, quite frankly, I'm astonished with all the brain trust in Washington, D.C., why this isn't somebody who already hasn't suggested this plan. But to understand what the plan looks like, I think it would be best for me to share the letter. I'll read the letter in brief uh, that I wrote to the Joe Biden uh, campaign. Let me just say that my plan incorporates some aspects of what makes Medicare the most successful single-payer health care system in this country. Uh, seniors love Medicare but it maintains the reliance on private insurance companies as well, which had no chance of being eliminated from this equation in the first place. So here goes. I'll read the letter from the beginning to the end, and then you guys can follow up with questions or comments, if that's all right with you guys. Sounds perfect. Dear Vice President Biden, I am writing you today because I have decided to support you as the Democratic Party's choice 
to be the nominee for president in 2020. I think you are the man of the hour that this country needs to restore confidence that we have an intelligent, truthful, and dedicated person leading our country. I also firmly believe that you have what it takes to defeat Donald Trump in the next presidential election. That said, I would think that if you can articulate a comprehensive solution to our health care insurance problems, you would separate yourself from Trump and the Republican thinking, or lack of it, on this matter. By laying out a policy to change and better our health care system, a problem of foremost importance to the American public, you could provide the American electorate with another important reason for them to vote you into office. In that regard, I believe that I have a very viable solution to the problem of furnishing Americans with universal health care. What I am hearing from Democrats is one of two choices, either an extension of Obamacare or Medicare for all. Both of these choices have inherent problems that make them either less effective or too costly to actually implement. My plan would be a unique perspective because it's a hybrid plan that leverages both communities of thought and keeps the private insurance companies involved. If adopted by you, it could uniquely differentiate your campaign. What makes Medicare successful and most appreciated by seniors is that it protects seniors when they get seriously ill and makes the supplemental insurance options that most of us opt for very affordable. The supplemental insurance is affordable because the insurance companies know their liability of paying out is extremely limited. My plan for all Americans would work in a similar way. The Biden Healthcare Initiative would work as follows. All Americans would qualify from birth or when they become citizens for what I am calling universal protective care, UPC for short. This Medicare-like protection would kick in at a predetermined amount for working purposes, let's say $25,000. So if you become critically ill or you may be involved in a devastating accident where your medical care exceeds $25,000 in a fiscal year, the universal protective care kicks in. The patient is still responsible for the first $25,000 of their medical expenses. However, like the supplemental insurance plans that are offered to seniors covered by Medicare, you can have private health insurance that covers you for the initial cost, that first 25 grand. That insurance would obviously be inexpensive when compared to today's coverage because the exposure for the insurance companies is limited to the first 25,000. The universal protective care would be funded by a small percentage being levied from earnings much like how we pay for Medicare today. For example, a person making $100,000 per year would pay 3% of their earnings to the UPC fund, and their employer would match that. In this example, that would be a total of $6,000 a year per person. The average cost to insure a family of four today with private insurance is well over twenty grand per year. Very often, the employee is responsible for at least half of that cost. This would represent a savings of $7,000 for both the employee and the employer. This leaves more than enough money on the table 
to cover the private insurance needs to cover people for that initial 25 grand segment. This will save money across the board, bring down health expenses drastically, and it will invigorate the economy as well. I am not an actuary, so my figures shown are, for example, only. I am confident that if you have your staff work on the numbers, this hybrid plan will prove to be very viable for all entities, all Americans, employers, and, and the private insurance companies. Other aspects to be considered could be to lower the age that people become eligible for Medicare to 55, thereby taking the biggest liability of big health expenses off this main plan and shift it to the Medicare plan. In addition, under this plan, a person who becomes unemployed during the duration of the unemployment, he would be covered by the UPC. That would do away with the need for COBRA, which never made sense. COBRA put an additional expense on the shoulders of the unemployed just when they can least afford it. I sincerely hope that you take this letter seriously and that you and your team discuss these recommendations. If you have any questions or would like to talk with me personally, I would welcome the opportunity to do so. I wish you luck on your campaign to become our next president, and I will continue to support you in your efforts to do so. Sincerely yours, Herb Leifer. You fire away and ask me questions about the plan, and I think I can get into my belief and explanation of why this plan really has the capability of working for the American people. You know, I want to break it down a little bit. So basically, the first 25 grand would be the responsibility of the American citizen. Um, they could choose to not have health care at all. Basically, if that was the case, they would be they would spend $25,000 maximum. Is that correct? A year. Right. That comes out of their pocket. You, you know how we've heard, you know, that health care is, is a right that you should be born and you have that right as an American citizen to health care. And uh, I believe that. What I've laid out here with the universal protective care, that is the part of the health care that every American citizen, when they're born or when they become naturalized, they become a citizen, they're awarded. That is something they get free of charge. They don't have to pay for it out of their pocket. They're protected, basically, and it says, listen, your first increments of twenty or twenty five thousand a year, that's on you. You gotta be responsible for that. You can either decide to not cover yourself with, with supplemental insurance. And if if you get into a car accident and you need a hundred thousand dollars worth of medical care, you're gonna have to come up with twenty grand. Or you can opt to get private insurance, very much like the supplemental insurance with Medicare that covers that portion that Medicare doesn't cover, the supplemental insurance would work the same way. It would cover that first twenty dollars to $25,000 of out-of-pocket expenses. So the insurance companies would love this because, again, like they, they, they love Medicare. That's why you see all these ads on TV all the time for uh, the supplemental insurance coverage. Medicare Advantage and all that, yeah. Right, all of that. Because they love selling that because they make a lot of money doing it. Because Their exposure is limited. Exactly. Their exposure is limited. And in this case, in my case, their exposure would be 20 or 25 grand. They know that that's the worst that can happen. If you, you get cancer and you need $300,000 worth of chemotherapy care and, and all the else that, that 
comes with that. After the first 25 grand, which if you had insurance, helps to pay for that. After that, the UPC picks it up. Which brings premiums down. Exactly. I was just going to say, because we were thinking the same thing. Because the exposure for the insurance company is no more than 25 grand per person, the, obviously the premiums are going to be so much lower than they are now. So much lower. Right. Right. So like, for, for instance, my wife and I, for a family of four, we pay $1,500. For a family of four under this plan, it would be a lot less. It would, you know, I mean, I have no idea what that what it would be. Do you have any kind of estimate as to what you think? I I would estimate it as probably for a family of four, you could get a family coverage, the supplemental coverage for three fifty four hundred dollars a month, six thousand dollars a year out of your pocket, as opposed to a minimum of twenty five to thirty thousand a year is a big difference. But it also saves the employer money too, because right now many many employers especially the larger ones, pay for some portion of healthcare insurance. So very often, like in my company, we used to pick up half of the premiums and the uh, employee paid the other half. Well, this would save both employer and the employee. By saving the employer, that should help to, to bolster the economy because these companies all of a sudden would have more money to invest back into their business. If you made a hundred grand, you would probably have to pay like a three percent. Like you pay for Medicare now out of your salary, three percent I would estimate somewhere in that vicinity. So let's just say in round numbers, it would cost you three thousand dollars out of your your paycheck every year to pay for UPC for the Universal Protective Care. Everyone who works pays into that fund, the three percent, and the employer pays a matching three percent. That's what funds the UPC. If you made a hundred grand, you'd pay three thousand for the UPC. You'd pay about six thousand dollars for private insurance for a family of four. That's nine grand. That's far less than what most people are paying for health insurance today. Now here's the other kicker, and that is for high income individuals. Someone who's making, I would think, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars or more and there's plenty of those people in the country today, those people are going to probably say, you know what? If I have to write a check for 20 grand or for 25 grand because I'm in an accident or my, my child, God forbid, gets cancer, I can do that. I can afford it. It's a one-time expense. Rather than paying $6,000 a year for private insurance for 30 years, Think about that. That's $180,000. Most smart people making two hundred and fifty to 300000 a year or more are going to say, I don't need the insurance. I'll save my money. And what that does is it takes all of those people out of the system, too. Yeah, it takes more burden off the insurance. That's right. And there's no individual mandate, which is the big thing. People have the right to choose if they want to carry or not. It's the opposite. It's full choice, and the only there's no mandate because you're born into the system of getting the UPC. Every American citizen will be entitled to the UPC. Yeah, the biggest critique of Obamacare was that mandate, and this, this makes it very viable because it takes the mandate out of the equation. Now, you know all of our Republican audience is still saying, 
well, who's going to pay for that? How much is it going to cost this UPC? So go a little bit into tax-wise, how much more of a burden that's going to be for the individual. I would think that this is going to cost about $3,000 per, per person using an average number of 100 grand. If you made 50000 it would cost you $1,500 a year. That's what pays for the UPC. And because part of my plan is recommending that when you're 55, you automatically transfer from the UPC to Medicare. Now, that's 10 years earlier than what happens now. You have to be 65 to get Medicare. If it's at 55, it takes a gigantic burden off of the system that all of a sudden some person comes down with multiple sclerosis when they're 50 years old. And now for 15 years, the system presently has to somehow pay for the medication. And MS medication today is $70,000, $80,000 a year. The b- biggest industry in America today is cancer care. It exceeds everything else. Nothing comes close. The airline industry is a tiny little morsel compared to cancer, what we spend on cancer. Uh, The auto industry doesn't even come close to it. So once again, um, this takes that burden off of the system. The reason, Rob, you're paying $1,500 a month for your family for, for health insurance is for the old folk that you're paying for who get sick, who get cancer and get diabetes later in life that need care. That and also, there, as we talked about earlier on this podcast, there are 40 million people in this country who are uninsured. When those people get sick and we don't provide and we provide care for them because we don't leave them to die in the waiting room. That burdens the system. It, that burdens the system and, and our, uh, our premiums go up. So that would be gone. It burdens the hospitals because the hospitals can't turn away anybody so someone comes in with from a car crash doesn't have any insurance and needs two hundred thousand dollars worth of medical care the hospital is left with an unpaid bill and who's paying for that all of us essentially if that exact scenario were to take place under the upc the hospital then instead of getting a bill for two hundred thousand dollars that this person can't pay wouldn't then get a bill for $25,000. Right. The person who has no insurance would get the, the bill for the first increment, the twenty five grand. Now, let's say that person is, you know, makes $40,000 a year, has no insurance. All right. That person is going to have to pay off that twenty grand, but it could be done on a payment plan, maybe $1,000 a year paid for the next 20 years. Okay, it won't put that person into bankruptcy. What we have to stress here is that the government burden would actually be a lot less because it would only be covering catastrophic for mostly healthy young people because it would be under 50, right? Or under 55, was it? Right, right. The unemployed, how are they dealt with? Are they covered by the 3% paid by the employees and employers? Everybody is covered. You're an American citizen, you're covered. What about uh, children? At what age are they responsible? So I think right now it's 23 or 25. It was extended, by the way, after we passed 25, unfortunately for us. Yeah. I remember my brother and sister getting that benefit, but not us. 
it goes away because, again, every American citizen is covered to some degree by the UPC. All right, now, children who are part of a family, when you go to buy the supplemental insurance, and here's another feature that I would love to see happen, the insurance would not be part of employment like it is today. You wouldn't have to be employed to buy insurance. You would buy the insurance like you buy car insurance. The insurance companies would fight over you. Medicare for all, uh, one of the huge problems with that idea is the idea that there would be tens of thousands of people who work in the healthcare industry that would lose their jobs, presumably. We just eliminated private insurance, which would wreak havoc on the economy. Is that is that one of the main problems you see with Medicare for all? Because there are there are a lot of Bernie bros listening to this right now who probably think, oh, no, but Medicare for all is better. Yeah, Medicare for all sounded great. Bernie was great. It sounded great. But it would never happen. You know, the insurance companies that cover health insurance in this country today, they employ thousands, probably, you know, oh, it's, it, it's probably a couple of million people that they, that they, they employ. Um, so, yeah, they may, they may want to consolidate. They may not need as many employees uh, under this new plan, but they'll still stay in business and they'll still and they'll make money. And that's their most important aspect. They'll make more money with this plan than they do with the health care plans that they offer today. Uh, Yeah, I actually said to Rob when he mentioned this to me originally, this is the only way that a a universal health care system could exist in our country because it maintains that private system. If you didn't have that as part of your plan, you wouldn't even be able to get this past the lobbyists. They'd laugh you out of the room. That's right. Even Republicans would see the advantages and say, you know what? I own a big company with 150 employees. I'm going to save a lot of money. I'm going to be able to take that money and reinvest it and I'll be able to grow my business. I'll be able to hire more employees. Um, it, It would be great for the economy. The UPC, like Medicare, will be able to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies and with hospitals and with all kinds of doctors who will sign up and say they will accept UPC based on a certain rate structure, which will contain health costs tremendously, well beyond how they're being contained, because they're not being contained today. No, and we have very little transparency as well. And there's a bill that Trump flipped on completely that was going to create transparency. He went the other, the other way, unfortunately. And perhaps this is another solution that the UPC would solve. Right. And then I touched on this for a second, and that was when you become unemployed. Um, again, I could never understand this. I, I felt bad if I ever had to fire an employee and that person goes, well, what about my health insurance? Sorry, you know, that's why you got Cobra. All right, great. So the $1,500 that I've been, that you've been paying half of it for me, now I got to pay the whole thing myself? No, not only the whole thing, because Cobra is going to cost you 125% more. And just when someone is out of work, doesn't have the means to pay for it, you're asking them to buy insurance on their own. It's ridiculous. I think. This would be a good segment for this. I've, I've tried to play devil's advocate with this plan and tried to come up, find the holes. And there's got to be something. There's got there's to be something that, that, that my father hasn't thought of. So if you're if a listener out there 
has thought of something or has a question how this would work or how that would work, please chime in with this one because we want to hear your thoughts. Poke holes in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's bulletproof. All right. So we uh, will get back to the rest of our podcast. Thank you so much, Dad, for coming on. I appreciate it. It was really great having you. And Rob, you could call me once in a while. We could talk more often than you know, once every two years on a podcast. And there is the Jewish parent <laughs> on a podcast. There it is. Your mother made me say that. Yeah, of course. Of course she did. <laughs> All right. That was incredible. We just heard from uh, Riz's dad himself, Herb Leifer, who I hope that letter makes it all the way through. I hope that someone's listening and they pick it up because I do think that the only way forward is a combination system, the way that your dad uh, laid out. It was it was really, really well thought I out. I think and- it's a brilliant plan. We also, like like my dad said, and like we said it uh, when we uh, on our call with him, you know, if you if if you can think of any ways to poke holes in this, we'd love to hear. We you know because we think this is this is the plan for America that might actually be able to move this issue forward. So it's not such a divisive issue. You know, there's there's a lot of a lot of people will say that politicians don't actually want to solve issues that they want to just keep the issues to run again to to campaign on for the re-election and a lot of cases i think that's true i think the democrats have actually held the immigration issue like that they've never really wanted to solve it because it's a very divisive issue that helps get them elected but with this with the healthcare thing i do think there is political will to get this solved i really do so i hope so i think you know, when you when you hear universal system, it's kind of a dirty word on the right. And I think we need to rid ourselves of that. I think it's the only way forward. It needs to be a combination with the private system so that we don't lose those jobs. But I do think that we need to, you know, we need to shake off that that it's an evil on the right, at least. Yeah, yeah I think very, very well put. That's our episode for today. We have a very great interview coming up uh, with one of my very, very good friends, Dr. Andrew. He's a guy I grew up with, and uh, he's a medical doctor in New York in the emergency room. He has a lot to say about COVID. Right right in the middle of all of it. In the middle of all of it, especially when it was all going down a few months ago when New York was the epicenter. They've since recovered, thank God, and uh, that's a beautiful thing. Um, Now it's LA's turn. Jay and I are in LA. We're in the thick of it. Just shut down again here. I mean, things are just crazy. But uh, Andrew has a lot of good to say, and it was intended to just be a conversation about healthcare and about COVID. And then it we ended up talking about politics a little. And we might- It really took a turn. It took a turn, but it was really interesting and it was respectful and we disagree on a lot, but it was really good stuff. And we might actually put that in another, because it's so long, we ended up talking for like two hours. We might actually put that in a separate interview just so you guys could hear if you're interested. Because it, it is interesting to get- a medical doctor's perspective on this whole thing. And Andrew happens to be very far on the left, which is interesting to me because again, yay capitalism. He went to medical school for all that time. And it's it's fascinating to hear what he has to say on this. Yeah, it really, really, really is. And you know what? Maybe I'm wrong about the way I'm thinking about this, but th- but you know, that's what this show is all about. It's about talking through issues. If we're wrong, let us know. If you think we're wrong, let us know. I will argue. I'll argue to the death if 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 I think I'm right. So, you know, don't tempt me. Don't tempt me, Jay. I'm not going to tempt you. But what I'd like you to do is go to www.downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. If you send us questions, we'll answer them on the air. 
Follow us on social media uh, at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, at Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and at Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. If those confuse you, just go to our website. They're all there. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening, and visit our Discord. Get into some political conversation. It'll be a great deal of fun. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Justin Siegel, and you can follow Riz at. You can follow Riz at Instagram at. Rob underscore Lifer, L-E-I-F-E-R, and Twitter at Rob Lifer. Uh, and again, Facebook. Yeah, just just you know, just search me. You'll find me somewhere. All right. Well, uh, we got a lot of good stuff coming up for you in the next couple of weeks. We already have sort of a plan laid out. All right, we got some good interviews coming up. Yeah, um, we got a schedule. Welcome to our schedule, where we've scheduled out the next couple of weeks for you. Exactly. It'll be fun. Uh, again, hope to hear from you guys. Hope you're enjoying it. Hope you liked our topical episode this week we 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 dive face first into this healthcare stuff yeah let us know if you like if you like topical episodes in general we we have a lot more planned and we'd like to do some more so we'd like to know what you think we did have the top of the episode that wasn't topical but you know that was just the very beginning that's why it was its own segment yeah exactly so everyone take care out there wear your masks be safe let's get over this covid thing because i am getting very very tired of it and so are my kids okay we need to get this done because it sucks and i just hate living like this don't you if you're not going to do it for yourself do it for riz's kids (laughs) do it for my kids do it for my family do it for just uh, your dog anything i mean it's just it's, it's time it's time all right guys have a great week and we'll see you next time all right bye good night